0: The simplest one for me, anyway, is just that good stories sell. Uh, Now, bad stories also sell, but uh, in comparison to all the trash that's being milled out by Hollywood these days, um, you have, or I I don't find it coincidental that you have a, a story that's based on a great set of books that's actually, at least in the first few seasons, which we may talk about later, faithfully reproduced. And then people all of a sudden see a good story on film and they like it. So, I mean,
1: that way, it's not too mystifying to me. We are, of course, talking about HBO's Game of Thrones. The Game of Thrones. Welcome to Thought Fuzz. I'm Mike. And I'm Aaron. And this week, we're discussing monarchy. That's right. This will be the first episode that we do about Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. We have some ideas for more episodes.
0: Mm-hmm. The occasion being,
1: of course, Game of Thrones' final season. The final season. The final six episodes. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's only six? phenomenon. Oh, oh yeah. There's only six. So, Aaron, I'd like to take a moment here to bring everyone up to speed. I'm assuming that if you are listening to this podcast, then you are at least notionally familiar with Game of Thrones, if not familiar with the overall plot and its characters. But for those of you who need a recap ahead of this new season... I'd like to provide one for you right now. Game of Thrones is a long-form television series set in the fictional continent of Westeros, and it's an adjacent continent, Esos, on a fictional planet called Planetos. That's true. That is true. And the plot of the show centers around a MacGuffin, now, a MacGuffin, for those of you who don't know, is basically an object or a thing around which a story is formed. So in Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's the Lost Ark. In Star Wars, it's the Death Star plans. In Game of Thrones, the MacGuffin is the Iron Throne. That's because the Iron Throne, whoever sits on it, controls the continent of Westeros. Westeros is a continent uh, that has seven kingdoms on it, and each of these kingdoms has uh, a head guy or girl. Uh, They're lords, I guess, but they're sometimes referred to as kings, and the person who controls all seven kingdoms is the king of Westeros. I hope that explanation sums it up pretty neatly so because westeros is an entire continent and it's got so many people and they're all vying for control over the entire continent you get a lot of different personalities and in these personalities you get various different expressions of monarchy so sometimes Mm -hmm. you get really bad monarchs like Mm -hmm. joffrey lannister or Joffrey Baratheon, secretly a Lannister. Mm-hmm. You get weak monarchs in the guise of his younger brother Tommen mm-hmm. Baratheon. You get absent monarchs in the guise of their father's uh I shouldn't say guys. Well, in the in the in the character. In the character, yeah. yes, of Robert Baratheon. You get Fair but cruel in the form of the uh, claimant to the throne, Stannis Baratheon. You get just and fair in the Lord, Eddard Stark. Mm -hmm. Passionate and caring in Robb Stark. You get a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. I haven't even begun discussing Daenerys and Jon who Mm -hmm. are really in each their own ways, the show's ideal monarchs for various reasons. I suppose, maybe. I suppose. I mean, even that can be brought into question. But yeah, that is is the world of Westeros leading into season eight, which is that it's had its fair share of monarchs. Each Hmm. of these people have brought to the throne their particular character. And each of them, in so doing, have expressed... Very different ideas of what a monarch can be, or should be, mm-hmm. or will be in certain circumstances, mm. and that brings us really to our discussion today, doesn't mm. it, Aaron? Mm-hmm. Which is first, what is Game of Thrones' opinion on monarchy? Yeah, how do we react to it in our in our own life? Mm. And finally, is monarchy ethical?
0: Or yeah, or you know, what do we what, what do we think, think about of monarchy? It? What, do what do does Game of Thrones
1: it? think of monarchy? Yeah. What does our society think of monarchy? Mm. And what do we personally think of monarchy?
0: So uh with respect to Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones addresses monarchy in I think something of a um of a relevant period context, right? And what by that I mean Game of Thrones tends to have an the the story, the narrative has an attitude toward monarchy the way that you probably would see if you lived in a world where monarchy was the norm
1: right. there isn't a character in Game of Thrones to be clear who wants to disband the throne altogether and replace it with an elected government
0: yeah there's yeah there's no you know a, a monarchy of course, is merely one form of government uh, and um and it's uh the various types of governments the knowledge of various types of governments is as old, almost as old as human history goes. As long as human beings have been thinking about how to govern themselves, there have been many options of how to, um, how human beings can organize themselves and be potentially governed. Um, and you know, the the Greeks knew very well about all types of governments, democracies, tyrannies, monarchies, oligarchies, all those sorts of things, right? Um, but in a world where monarchy is the norm, there is no question about reforming the type of government or choosing a type of government. Rather, the question is how can we get the best monarch? So given that monarchy is the only thing we can have. And so in that, in that context, we see the narrative that the drama of game of Thrones really become in to a very explicit extent, a drama of personalities.
1: Yeah, I I, I think you're right. Monarchy, by its very nature, is dependent, or at least has been dependent, for the vast majority of its existence on the quality of character and the content of character of the person occupying the throne.
0: Correct. And so, in that sense, we have ripe ripe, uh, ground to sow a very interesting narrative of individuals.
1: And even when you see characters in the show who wish to change the monarchy, I'm thinking specifically of the High Sparrow, who is a religious zealot speaking ostensibly on behalf of the downtrodden masses who are the the principal victims, if you will, of this Game of Thrones. Even still, he doesn't seek to do away with monarchy as such. Instead, uh, he... In, in some sense, you can interpret that he is a new monarch, speaking through the vestiges, the uh, medium of the current sitting monarch.
0: Yeah, and and uh, it's it's I think it's not um, unreasonable to interpret the narrative of the High Sparrow uh, story um, to reflect the struggle. That um, the uh, in in medieval Europe anyway that the religious institution of uh, the the Church of the the Catholic Church that it had with the um, evolving political narratives of of Europeans and you have this you have this um, simultaneous uh, you have this simultaneous effort by the Church to also in its way achieve a kind of monarchical political position. Uh, alongside uh, the secular monarchs, if for no other reason to make sure that they don't do things like, you know, murder innocent people and do whatever. But point being that they're participating as well. The High Sparrow is participating in the system, as it were, as much as any secular person.
1: Perhaps most tellingly, when the show moves away from Westeros to explore lands in the continent of Essos on the planet called Planetos... (laughs) I love that. Uh, Even still, the rulers of so-called Slaver's Bay, while not necessarily being called king or queen or lord, function as if they were. Uh, Even though they have a large council, which is the case in some of the cities that uh, the wayward queen-to-be Daenerys visits, even still... They have a top-down government that rules with an iron fist, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which suggests, in the fiction of this world, that monarchy, in whatever Mm -hmm. form it might take, is the norm, even, in a sense, the default, and uh, that the issue isn't about finding the right government for people but maybe tuning up the government that already exists yeah finding
0: the right person to occupy the position and so this is gonna it's gonna get us further into our conversation. I think if nothing else, the narrative of Game of Thrones this this monarchy narrative um, reveals something important uh, about monarchy itself and about our attitude towards it Firstly as we've already said, the Game of Thrones narrative reveals that the personality and the individual nature of the monarch affects greatly the quality and, and character of their kingship or queenship. That's the first point. The second point is is that they, they, as the narrative evolves, we as the audience empathize much more with those monarchs which act of, of their own free will more in the benefit of their people than act selfishly.
1: I think I can agree with that right mostly. And,
0: Right. And so and so what this what this tells us then is that um the monarchs who have power and yet nevertheless having more or less total power still act out of their own good sense, out of their own goodwill for the benefit of their own people, are the kind of leaders that the kind of monarchs that we like best. I'm sure we'll get into that later, but firstly, let me put it to you that um, it's because most of the monarchs in this show don't act that way. Doesn't that tell us something about the monarchy that's 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 uh, narrated for us in Game of Thrones?
1: So a little about the show. It is based on a series of novels uh, by George R. R. Martin, who when he was setting out to write the story, wanted to create something that was independent from The Lord of the Rings, which to that point in the mid-90s was utterly dominant in the field of fantasy novels. The field of fantasy novels, as he has stated in other interviews, uh, were primarily concerned with battles between good and evil and with uh, different, you know, fictional races of people like elves and dwarves. On the other hand, he was also inspired by uh, English history, and specifically the War of the Roses. So he wanted to write something that was more morally complex than your average fantasy novel. He wanted to avoid a lot of the tropes of fantasy novels. He wanted to really explore what you could do within the realm of a fantasy novel.
0: Without having to rely on fantastical elements as much. Correct.
1: As, well, mm. interestingly, the, that first novel, A Game of Thrones and The Song of Ice and Fire, presents itself as almost like historical fiction mm-hmm. in a fantasy world. Mm-hmm. And it's not really until you get to the end of the novel that true died in the wool fantasy elements make their uh, presence known. That's when it becomes clear that dragons exist Mm -hmm. and that magic may in fact be real. Okay, so with all that in mind, uh, it's interesting to notice then that even without having a character show up and say, I think monarchy is bad, you know, and without having a, a Monty Python the Holy Grail style scene where somebody says... Monarchy, I thought we were living in an autonomous collective. Hmm. Uh, You nonetheless have the subtext that maybe monarchy is not the best option. Well, yeah. These people uh, who are the principal characters in Game of Thrones do atrocious things to one another, all in the uh, pursuit of an Iron Throne. And really importantly, their pursuit of an Iron Throne prevents them from taking care of what is far and away the more pressing problem,
0: which is.
1: is the war in the North right, against the White Walkers. right. So, again, without having a character come in and tell you that monarchy is a waste of time and energy and resources, the show presents you with... What I suppose you could categorize as an environmental catastrophe on its way. Winter is coming, and it uh, shows that the pursuit of the Iron Throne is the number one thing that's keeping people from marshaling forces to prevent the White Walkers. Yeah, and and um, it's
0: it articulated that way. It has some interesting uh, relation. It has an interesting relationship to our current times, uh, in that our current times in a lot of the, of the Western world are caught up with major political, uh, events and the day-to-day necessities of people, um, you know, reacting to say, you know, homelessness or climate change and things like that. They get kind of swept to the side in the, in the quest to solve these, these problems these political issues. Um, But um, I think with, with monarchy and game of thrones, and as you say, so this show highlights that, um, you know, what you, what you get with the monarch is what you get with the monarchy. And it's, and the only person who, uh, I mean, in the show anyway, the only person who controls, you know, the quality of the leadership, the quality of this, of the, the kingship or the queenship is the person that's, that's in that role. Um, and, and therefore, if good ruling is what you want, then uh, having that as a dice roll in a person's one person's personality seems to be very, seems to be curious, right? Why would you want to do that, right? Now, it must be said though, that in this sense, in this sense, it does not reflect necessarily the kind of monarchy that's often seen in um, human history.
1: Or in the present day, uh, well, uh, sure, yeah, in a country such as Canada, uh,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: um,
0: because of course, in um, especially in medieval Europe, monarchy was when, when it existed, it was most often extremely weak. This is true, and by weak, what I mean is that a monarch in medieval Europe is typically a lord of many, so a lord among many lords where this particular Lord individually is much more powerful than any other individual Lord. But collectively that one Lord who happens to sit on the throne is extremely weak compared to the collective power of every other Lord. And it is only through the sort of the oligarchic decision of the group of Lords to choose one of their own and have them fulfill the role of of King that that Lord has any power. And it is in the oligarchic sort of collection of Lord's best interest to obey whoever they put on the throne, because if it's their turn to get put on the throne, they want others to obey them, you see. So it's, it's a, it's a sort of a very tacitly, cautiously constructed political environment um, among powerful nobles. But in that, in that environment, in that environment, Kings are easily deposed and it, Kings are easily deposed, and it is incumbent upon the king to to very carefully harvest the goodwill of their fellow lords. That's right. Because as soon as the goodwill of the fellow lords is lost, they you know they can be lost, and their head can be lost. So it's actually much harder in real life for certainly in the Middle Ages for a king to go off off a bender of blood and destruction and just sort of you know do whatever they want.
1: Yeah, right? you're, you're raising a really interesting point here, and I, it's it's a point that I want to discuss because uh, the influence of Game of Thrones is such that when you now go to the United Kingdom and you go to tourist spots there, like the Tower of London, to explain the concept of monarchy to tourists from countries who uh, might not have that form of government, uh, they often make reference to Game of Thrones, and they'll talk mm. about, and they'll use the term of Game of Thrones, and it, it is, it is fascinating to see how one television show yeah. can so influence the perception of monarchy the world, around, uh, you know, throughout the world. I, mm-hmm. uh, but I think it's really important to point out that monarchy in Game of Thrones is based on a kind of pop understanding of monarchy.
0: Well, and, and if I could just speak to that very briefly, that exactly the kind of monarchy. That we see in game of thrones is more it's closer to a victorian concept yes of monarchy from the days of the absolute monarchs
1: yeah so not not victorian that's too late no no, no i said wait, wait, wait,
0: hold on. i said I said a victorian concept ah, of yes. monarchy that comes from the days of the absolute monarchs which are in the begin in the early modern period most most uh typified by louis the 16th right the sun king yeah right there, and there is an age of absolute monarchs where it is absolutely the case that the nature of the monarchy depends on the personality of the monarch, but that is not a medieval thing. that is a that is a later later That's period true. thing.
1: So it is yeah. interesting that the show presents itself as high middle ages, which would yeah. be uh, typical of maybe the thirteen and fourteen hundreds, but is relying yeah. on a form of government that could only achieve its level of absolute power. Uh, with the economic sophistication and interconnectedness of societies that would emerge in the Renaissance and Enlightenment period. And tellingly, when arguments were made for representative government, it was precisely in this period. That's correct. You didn't have a reason uh, in, in, in a lot of ways to argue for representative government when the government in question was so fundamentally weak as it was in the Middle Ages or throughout the most of the Middle Ages that uh, kings and queens could come and go and it, it likely would not affect the the day-to-day life of your average mm. northern French farmer. Well, you had less of a reason. You had less of a reason. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, when enlightenment philosophers made arguments for representative government, think John Locke, for example, or for extraordinarily powerful monarchs or leaders, think Thomas Hobbes. It was after the Middle Ages. It was... Very much a, after. Very much after, and it was it was in a period where monarchy had undergone a fundamental transformation.
0: Yep, and not only that, but the kind of monarchs that you had were not the kind that you would want to have. They were right. the kind that often abused their power and position in exactly the same way as you would see
1: many do in Game of Thrones. Precisely. So Game of Thrones is trading in a... Now, to Game of Thrones' is credit, it never claims to be historically accurate. No, of course not. No, it's no. a fantasy series. And the fantasy series uh, it has a fa- it has a dramatic foundation that includes uh a kilometer high ice wall that prevents that cuts off a continent uh from its northern part it's got dragons it's got magic it's got a a society of people that has existed in its own historical reckoning for about eight to twelve thousand years and yet retains swords yeah and yeah uh they're not got, big on
0: invention. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> it's
1: it is it is a show where uh, George R. R. Martin has talked about this, where he wanted to uh, recapture some of the sense of the unknowingness of medieval peoples that they didn't know, they didn't have specific cartography. Right, their their conception of the world was highly flawed. Uh, even their own conception of time was well f- flawed, flawed. I don't
0: know. I don't know about flawed, L- limited maybe is a better word. Y-
1: yeah, we'll say limited. That's a that's a that's a that's a more accurate term. It's it, it's a very limited understanding, even limited understanding of things like disease and uh, mm. medicine. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that occur in Game of Thrones that could be regarded as simply medical practice, but which to their understanding is. Magical. Magical. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's that kind of
0: wonderful medieval uh, medievally world. Um, but, but of course, monarchy exists, uh, exists in the real world, and it continues until this day.
1: In Canada, uh, where we are recording this podcast, we do have a monarch. Now, the monarch doesn't rule directly. Uh, our monarch is Queen Elizabeth II as of this recording. She is represented in Canada by an unelected official named or titled the governor general. The governor general is appointed uh, by the sitting government. So what we find ourselves with is that we have a monarch who is for better or for worse, a a kind of figurehead uh, without direct powers in government. The monarch could theoretically rule uh, and make edicts and directives, but without the broad support of the people and of their elected officials in parliament, it's impossible to imagine that uh, anything that this theoretical monarch pushes through would have any effect whatsoever that would be constructive towards their aims, which begs the question... What's the point of having a monarch? Mm -hmm. Aaron, would you like to uh, take on that question? Absolutely. So, uh, Game of
0: Thrones indicates or um, makes my first argument against having a monarchy. um, And that is that it's too dependent upon the, broadly speaking, it's too dependent upon the personality of the monarch. Even if you have a a constitutional monarchy or you have a weak one. And so, um, I myself am a Democrat. And I believe that uh, the people should hold all sovereignty.
1: Yeah, let's let's uh, clarify so, the term "democrat" for those of you who are uh, only partly listening.
0: Yeah, so a so a monarchy is where the power to rule the country and and broadly speaking dictate the country's policies, aims, domestic and foreign is uh, that power is in the hands of a a uh, a monarch, and their family and their supporters. A democracy is when that power to control affairs, both foreign and domestic, is in the hands of all of the people of the country. Or in the case of modern democracies, because of their size, it is not in the direct hands of the people, but rather in a reduced number of representatives. And in Canada and in many countries, uh, there exists parliamentary democracies where the representatives of the people uh, being chosen in elections come together and discuss and rule on issues in the parliament
1: so you're raising an interesting point here, which is that once you once a society gets to a certain size and has a certain number of people, it becomes too difficult to have every single person be a direct representative in the government to have. Uh, a seat in, say, their parliament. Imagine how uh, difficult it is right now to get parliament uh, together to vote on anything. Now imagine that that parliament has approximately 38 million people in it, and you can start to see the problems there. So once you get to a certain size, you become reliant on uh, indirect rule, uh, which is to say representative rule. Uh, rule by the people in this sense invariably means rule via representatives many of whom by their very nature are either either are not or should not be elected think of like a like a general for example imagine if every single Mm -hmm. commanding officer in your military was not given that position by means of merit but by means of political campaigning, uh-huh. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that very fact in and of itself does not demean the democracy in question, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You can have people in very important positions of power who did not receive that position by means of uh, election. Mm-hmm. And in Canada, at any rate, you see this via the Senate, mm-hmm. which is an appointed position.
0: Well, I'm all for the abolition of the Senate as well as it, as it happens for some of the reasons. Right.
1: but. Anyways, but the 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 fact that such a thing ever existed in Canada I think means that uh at some point there was a belief that uh unelected officials in and of themselves are not incongruent with elected democracy.
0: Or or they're at least not incongruent in concept with good government, right? Because right. I think I think um this is going to tur- this is turning into a discussion of between governance yeah the merits of democracy and monarchy and so to begin that discussion i think we can agree that the aim of government is the aim of government ought to be good government right regardless of whatever form of government that you have
1: that's very aspirational but i agree with
0: right but i I would assume that regardless of what type of government you support or i support the goal of that government is Good governance.
1: Provided that the government right? was set up in good faith. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Assuming that, right? Right. So, so, in, so, uh, irrespective of what kind of government we have, I hope it does well. Right. That said, though, the question then becomes well, what kind of government is most likely to do well? Right. And, um, my contention, my first contention, I think this is speaks for itself, is that when you have power consolidated into smaller and smaller groups, right? Tyrannies, oligarchies, monarchies, autocracies, then the nature of that government highly depends on the nature of the people who are in that group. And therefore, uh, you, you. it would seem as if the people who are governed have far less control to affect that government in the case where its nature is awful right well
1: back to a point that we made earlier about the history of monarchy and the way that it's depicted in game of thrones
0: Mm -hmm.
1: monarchy in and of itself is not absolute monarchy no no no, that's
0: true oh that's true
1: and a a there is in point of fact certain benefit to a weak monarchy uh as was demonstrated in the oddly higher life expectancy of people living in medieval societies compared to the early renaissance uh, the lack of political uh, the lack of political organization and the relative discord that uh, monarchies often embodied in the Middle Ages uh, was proven to be something of a uh, benefit. And even when we look today at monarch- monarchies throughout Western Europe and all those places which retain the monarchy in say Canada, uh, we could see that the monarchy in question, uh, it doesn't really seem to have much power over the day to day concerns of its citizens, and it's not—it's not, it's not self evidently clear that the presence of a monarch in a place like Canada makes life demonstrably worse. Well, right, and I—I I admit that completely.
0: I don't think any kind of government is necessarily bad. I don't think dictators are necessarily bad. I don't think oligarchies are necessarily bad. If you had a good dictator, if you had a, if you had a benevolent, you know, a dictator, then it could be, it could be fine. A fair, benevolent, perfectly just dictator, the, a philosopher king. Yeah, sure. All of those things may work. But the problem is, is that if it happens that you don't get one, then what do you do? Right now, so my first argument is that, you know, is that, uh, just on that basis alone, the, the more, di- the more, um, uh, um, dispersed the power, the governing power is, uh, in a, in a form of government, the easier it is to affect it. The easier it is for the people who are governed to affect it if it goes badly. Okay. Second, uh, that's the first point. Second point question about, uh, or your, um, In response to your point about how having a monarchy doesn't necessarily demean the democracy that is present beside monarchies are only monarchies if they retain some form of sovereignty, otherwise they're nothing, right? You know, otherwise they're they are literally nothing. They're just a they're just a a, something that exists in principle only, but not in fact. Our monarchies in uh, the monarchies that are present in the world today right, including the one that we are ostensibly part of, retain some measure of sovereignty, okay? And in my opinion, as a Democrat, the people who are governed ought to retain every scrap of sovereignty that, there exi- that exists. And it isn't, doesn't make any sense to me to delegate that, a measure of that sovereignty to an unelected person.
1: Okay, so on that topic, let's look at the monarchies that do exist. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, For the purposes of this discussion, I think we shouldn't venture far outside of what is typically referred to as the Western world, because that's going to require a a level of knowledge and sophistication that I humbly do not possess. Nor me. So when we think about countries throughout the world that have uh, relatively low levels of public corruption high levels of public political participation, and uh, other key factors like that. Also, openness, relative openness of society, stability, social trust. Interestingly, a lot of these countries, uh, perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not coincidentally, uh, are monarchies. So you've got countries like Sweden, Norway, Denmark, the Netherlands, Belgium, the United Kingdom. Uh, Spain and Portugal Uh, I believe Portugal Uh, and whether or not that that can be attributed to uh, monarchy I suppose is your contention Aaron but it does bring about an interesting point and it's a point that we alluded to earlier on when we were talking about the history of monarchy and the role that it plays in Game of Thrones because again this is principally a discussion of monarchy in that particular TV show. What Game of Thrones uh, presents, at any rate, uh, is a problem that monarchy seeks to address, which is fundamentally stability and continuity, right? So when we were discussing monarchy earlier in the episode, one of the things we pointed out is that it seems to be a rather natural form of government in that it's relatively widespread and finds expressions, uh, whether explicitly or implicitly, in a variety of different social settings and civilizations and cultures. So I think it bears asking why it would appear to be natural. And it would appear, at any rate, at least as Game of Thrones depicts it, at least as a kind of pop understanding of Western history would depict it, that monarchy presents populations with stability, continuity, a government that is easy to understand, that does not require a sophisticated knowledge of uh, the mathematics and statistics of voting bodies and things like that, And so when you're talking about particularly pre-modern societies, uh, it would appear that monarchy has a lot of currency. But it would also seem that in modern societies, where we can expect a lot of turnover in voting and... uh, But we can also infer that monarchy has a lot of currency in modern societies because we can expect that in often turbulent times where voters are likely to switch allegiances from one party to another, that there will be a lot of turnover in government. And so having some kind of stability or continuity would be very alluring, I think, for a lot of people.
0: Uh, well, so I'm going to take you up on both those points you made. The first point being that um, circumstantially a lot of um, Western societies which retain a monarch of some form uh, are actually fairly decent societies with high living standards. Uh, I don't want to sound too dismissive, but I think that's wholly irrelevant. Um, I think that the monarchy is wholly irrelevant to that fact. I think that's that's uh, the fact that they have high living standards and whatnot is to do with their um, long recent history of parliamentary democratic action. Um, Because uh, effectively, the monarchs in these countries has not had the power to actually affect, in a real way, those living standards for a long time. So,
1: Well, then on that point, it is worth asking why so much emphasis is placed on how directly a leader affects the day-to-day procedures of politics or of political ruling, it does bear asking why a leader can't simply be someone who presents an image. I mean, what you're, what you're getting at in your point is something that could be said of a lot of leadership positions. CEOs of large companies, let's say a car company, aren't the ones who are going into the factory and stamping together pickup trucks. They aren't even the ones who are necessarily going through all the accounting bills and making sure all the numbers add up. In fact, they're not even necessarily the ones making the most executive decisions because that has to be cleared by a board of directors. And it has to have a level of legitimacy that can be felt throughout the company. So in effect, once you get to a large enough institution or organization, all figurehead, all leaders, in effect, provide a kind of moral guidance as opposed to practical guidance.
0: Well, I'll tell you what the difference is, Mike. It's a very key difference. The difference between, say, a prime minister or a president yes. and a monarch... Is that the sovereignty that is delegated them? The sovereignty that is delegated the prime minister, the president, and the CEO. They are fully accountable for that sovereignty, whereas the monarch is not. In is that true though? That is absolutely true. In our in our parliamentary democracies, our elected representatives are fully accountable in a in a in a in a democratic way. To the people, and if they misuse their sovereignty, through our agreed upon political mechanisms, the people have the right and the ability to remove them utterly from their position of government. Where, I
1: mean, there would be a, there's a long history of political strife that ends with uh, the deposing of monarchs that would seem to indicate that uh, they too are responsible, perhaps bodily responsible for their good governance.
0: Well, I, uh, w- without being too flippant, I, I, uh, I uh, submit to you that under normal circumstances, the heads of state in our democracies are removed through non-civil war means, and um, they're not, and they're deposed by not murder. Whereas in monarchies, history has shown that while it is true that it is possible to dispose a monarch and to hold a monarch accountable, often that ends. Uh, that that uh, that ends up with
1: the the edge of a sword. I mean, the history of the 20th century would seem to indicate that there are plenty of ostensibly publicly elected officials who were disp- deposed in less than parliamentary means.
0: Well, uh, that's also true. That's also true. But we're talking about, you know, it, it's also possible that parliamentary democracies can undergo a period of civil strife where elect- elected officials can be you know, physically harmed, but that's not the norm for them. That's not the norm for them. And w- right. with with monarchies, it's patently the case that the power that is that is given to a monarch, if it's real power, the power that is given to a monarch is unaccountable power, and and in, in a case of unaccountable power, the unaccountable power is only permissible, and uh, and sufferable if that power is used properly. And I already admitted that, you know, a monarchy, any any form of government can go well. It's just as possible for a dictator to be a benevolent dictator as it is for a monarch to be a benevolent monarch. But in the case where the dictator is not benevolent and in the case where the monarch is not a good monarch, the people do not have a, 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 a peaceful means, broadly speaking, to remove that monarch. And even in the Middle Ages... The, the way to remove the monarch was not through some sort of like election or some sort of peaceful act of political discourse. It was mostly through, we're going to have a meeting, and if you don't step down, your head will roll. Oh, okay, I guess I'll step down, or I guess we'll change monarchs, well, right? The, so,
1: the point that you're making is a, is a valid one, which is that in monarchies where the monarch has real power, uh, the problem there... As we see with Game of Thrones, is that the only way you can get rid of the monarch? Oftentimes, is either they abdicate of their own of their own free will, which is exceedingly rare, or uh, they are actively removed from the throne. Okay, but you're not really getting at my point, which is that when you have a large enough body and you have enough restraints on the power, whoever it may be, even if the person is elected, even if the person is elected, the system of government is so becomes so complex and so large-scale that no one person could possibly have any control over it. And as a result, even if the person is elected, an argument could be made that they're not actually responsible for the decisions uh, that are made in their name because they can't possibly be knowledgeable about every single decision being made. Uh, They're mostly just figureheads. The the president of the United States, for example, gets credit for the performance of the economy in his or her reign or tenure, as it were. Mm -hmm. But is the president really the one going through to each of these small businesses and Mm -hmm. making sure that they have proper levels of... You know
0: well no well no of course not the president the the president is the head of a team a government a right. government team and, and 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 just so a monarch a monarch is not you know a typically a monarch has lots of ministers and those ministers will do all the things and you know and exactly and you know a big government takes a lot of people but in my opinion the principal subject the principal sort of problem that we're talking about is accountability because no one cares When governments work well, people are forced to start to care when governments go poorly. And it is is exactly when governments go poorly that the mechanisms for dealing with those governments matter. And monarchy does not have, baked into it, effective mechanisms for dealing with it when it goes poorly, right? The mechanisms, they're just not there. And, And so the risk of, a, of a, a monarchical government going poorly is extremely great. And to your second point about, well, what if the monarchy is just a figurehead? Well, then if the monarchy is just a figurehead, first of all, I don't see why you'd need it. Number one, I really don't. And, and second of all, wouldn't it be better to have the figurehead actually mean something like, wouldn't it be better to have the figure of your prime minister or your president who is the head of your elected government, which controls all your sovereignty? Wouldn't that be a better figurehead than a rich person Who is a monarch that has? Who is a quote unquote monarch that has no power and yet somehow is a monarch? Like it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me.
1: Well, to your point about the moral rule of democratic nations and the apparent lack thereof in the ruling of monarchies, what I would say is that it's not clear. For example, that a democratically elected head of state is truly responsible for everyone. In point of fact, one of the uh, most complicated features of national elections at any rate or provincial elections is deciding where you're going to expend your efforts and whose votes matter more than others. And so in point of fact, when we see democratic processes in action, we often see that People are left at the wayside and governments that ought to rule for everyone equally. In fact, pick and choose who they rule.
0: Well, that's a very fair uh, criticism. And uh, um, at this point, I, I must say that I am in no way uh, suggesting that democracies are far and away, you know, the obviously superior method of governance.
1: Well, let me, let, so, me, let me make a point right now because I think uh, people are probably wondering exactly where I stand on this because I've agreed with you on quite a few things. Um, if a government already is monarchical in structure uh, and it's stable and the people live well and the system is trustworthy and the rights of individuals are protected, I see no reason to depose the monarchy. But if you don't already have a monarchy... I wouldn't suggest that you get one, which suggests to me at any rate that I'm not exactly a monarchist. I am not the kind of person who would ask that Canada impose monarchy on the rest of the world. Uh, I just think that it, it does have some value. I,
0: I I have been a monarchist at some time in my life um, when I was more focused on the concept of Achieving that fact, that desired good governance principle. And, you know, if you had a philosopher king, right, if you had a, a King Arthur at the head of a functioning moral monarchy, um, because a monarchy is a form of government where power is more centralized than a parliamentary democracy, wherever par- power is more centralized and in competent hands, that power is by logic wielded more effectively. Then, if that power is would be diffused, uh, diffused into a, a great bureaucracy of people, each with their own motivations and and desires and, and 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 whatnot. So when when monarchies work well, if they ever have, but when they have monarchies work well, I think in principle they have the ability, they have the potential to work better than a democracy that is also at the same time working. Well, however, the key difference is, and this is what I've come to focus on more in my, uh, more as I've grown up, the key difference is not about when they work well. For me, it's about when they fail and the, um, a monarchy, which is failing and which is actively persecuting its people. Is much, much harder to, to deal with than a democracy that is doing the same and uh, d- d- democracies which are doing the same by and large have mechanisms baked into them which allow for the removal of uh, at least the change in government right they allow for some kind of agitation by the populace to attempt to a change to change things whereas monarchies just don't have that and you know a monarchy which begins to fail ushers in a much more violent future much quicker in my view than um than parliamentary democracies do and so on that basis uh, since failing is more common then you know it's much much more common you get an average kind of semi corrupt you know hold person as the you know or people group group of people in your in your government than you do a you know Knights of the Round Table uh, I think you have to focus on the eventuality of failure rather than the possibility of roaring success
1: Game of Thrones has an oftentimes utterly ambivalent relationship with the concept of monarchy. It creates an idea of monarchy that is utterly dependent on the person sitting on the Iron Throne. So I wonder then whether or not the show won't just end with a kind of renunciation of monarchy. Ah, uh, you mean so Daenerys decides to sort of be the
0: be the the first and and last or like to be the last monarch on the throne, and she breaks the throne and gives the pow- power to the people, or something like that. No, it's it's it's
1: not that. I I think the, I think what it would. No, I suspect that, in some sense, Westeros regains the political stability that it needs for a successful monarchy, but the price at which it gains it, is cataclysmic the show will leave us wondering whether or not the fight for the Iron Throne was worth all the bloodshed. So for our listeners who will be watching Game of Thrones, let us know what you think. Does Game of Thrones offer a argument for or an argument against monarchy? And what would be the ideal government of the continent of Westeros? Would you rather be governed under a Prime Minister Samwise
0: Tarley. Samwise Tarley. Yeah, there you go. It's Samwell Tarley, but that's all right.
1: I'm getting my you're, Lord of the Rings in my. You
0: you're mixing up the you're mixing up my uh, favorite fantasy genre into this
1: uh, book, which is entirely understandable, and which also brings us to the year 2025 or whenever Amazon decides to release its Silmarillion TV show, yeah, which will invariably be a 22 minute sitcom.
0: Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm a very. I'm very skeptical about how this is going to go, because um, they're taking um, the the series is reported to be focused on the Akalabeth, which is the story of the rise and fall of Numenor,
1: and Numenor is the island from which the Gondorians came from. basically. Hi, I'm Mike. And the other guy's Aaron. And you've been listening to Thought Fuzz. If you like the show, tell your friends. If you didn't like the show. Tell your enemies that you did, and don't forget to rate us wherever you heard this. Follow us and continue the conversation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Check out our show notes for all the links. And finally, we'd like to say thank you to our listeners for supporting us. We couldn't do this without you. Until next time, keep it fuzzy.